Right. Praise God. Amen. Thank you, guys. And, and thank you, Seth, for coming over and leading worship today. Appreciate that. And uh, if you guys know Shane Kelderman, who used to be our youth and worship guy, he'll be here next week leading for us. So uh, that'll, be, that'll be awesome. It'll be fun. Um, and thank you, the rest of the worship team as well. And Eli coming over as well, helping us out. Good stuff. All right. We're in Romans 9 today. Seriously tempted to just go to Romans 10 and see if you noticed, but I didn't, and we're not, because it's in God's Word, but it's a tough one, so pray for me as I, as I <laughs> attempt to preach this this morning. While you're going there, I, I was thinking this week about one of the most human phrases and really one of the most American phrases, um, and that's the phrase, that's not fair. That's not fair, because it transcends financial status and ethnic backgrounds and age bracket, brackets and work ethics, rich, poor, black, white, young, old, lazy, and workaholics alike, humans, Americans, including this one, love to say that's not fair. However, that phrase and that line of thinking is a cultural trap. And when you get caught in this trap, it leads to questioning and complaining that really never ends and leaves you miserable. But what do we say to our kids when they go, that's not fair? What do we say? Life's not fair, right? And from a human perspective, it isn't. So it begs the question, is God not fair then? Pastor Bruce Thomas, uh, who's the pastor of Boone Biblical Memorial Church, which was the church that gave us this building and our property, um, and he just lives a couple blocks away, and, and uh, currently they meet over at uh, uh, West Haven. Um, but He's a, an incredibly godly man, but him and several other people ran a, a men's shelter right across the street for years. Um, and they had dozens and dozens of men come through that program. Um, and here's what I know. To, to this date, as much as we can tell, only one man we know of remains sober, clean, and following Jesus. Now there's two ways to look at that. Okay, you can look at it like this and go, hey, why was that guy saved but not all of the other guys who went through there? What are you doing, God? That's not fair. <clears throat> or you can look at it with this lens. Why did God save any of them at all? They were all undeserving. See, Romans 9 asks the same question of God. And we're going to look at it in these two general ways as well. I want to look at each section of the text through this lens of, of why them, but not them. That's not fair. But then I want to look at it properly with you from this perspective of really why anybody. So let's, let's take a look at Romans 9 and we'll look at 1 to 5 to begin. I'm speaking the truth in Christ I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So let's look at it from this angle. Why did God have mercy on Israel? But not everyone else. Of all the people groups at that time, God could have chosen anyone. Why Israel? It says they got the adoption, the glory, the covenants with God, the law, worship, promises, patriarchs, and eventually Jesus, the Savior, came from their bloodline. Why them? Why not the Egyptians? Why not the Chinese? It it almost seems like God just took a globe, spun it, and went, these people... That's not fair, God. Why did God put his favor on one people group? Now let's look at it differently. Let's look at it correctly. Why did God have mercy on anyone at that time? Let me tell you about people at the time that God decided to to start this nation of Israel, starting with Abraham. So this was not long after the Tower of Babel. If you look at Genesis the book of Genesis, we see in the timeline, this is not long after people built this, this huge tower trying to reach to God and make a name for themselves so that they could be like God. They were trying to say, God, we don't need you. We can do this ourselves. This was humanity at the time. And really, everyone at that time, including Abraham and his lineage, were full of rebellion idolatry, and self-worship. They loved themselves and they loved to worship things that were created rather than the creator. And what we saw when we were studying Romans in in Romans 3.10 is just as true now as it was back then. See, Romans 3.10 says that nobody is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. No one seeks after God. As well as Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, that was humanity at the time. That's humanity today as well. So the question is not, why did God have mercy on just Israel? It's, why did he begin pouring out his mercy and laying out his master plan of redemption at all? And that plan, as we're going to see in this very text this morning, is actually for everyone, not just Israel. But the point is that ever since Genesis 3, ever since sin entered the world, what was fair is that Nobody would receive God's mercy. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve and what I deserve and what they deserve. It's punishment from God, not favor, not mercy. Let's continue in, this, in the text, Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For all who are descended from Israel, for not all who are descended from Israel, belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So let's consider Abraham and Sarah for a second. Why did God have mercy on Abraham and Sarah? but not a different family. 
Well, let me tell you, Abraham and Sarah, we learned from Genesis, they lived in a, in a place called Haran, which was 400 miles from the promised land, from modern day Israel. I mean, God could have picked anyone, okay? God, you could have at least picked someone from the actual land that you're gonna give them, not someone 400 miles away, but yet God doesn't just do that. He, get, he promises them blessing after blessing. Listen to Genesis 12, one to three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See all that blessing, a name, land, people. It's incredible. But he could have picked any family. Why them and not someone else? That's not fair. Or is it? Here's the right question. Why did God have mercy on Abraham and Sarah at all? Let me tell you about Abraham and Sarah, okay? Abraham put his wife in critical danger, not once, but twice. Okay, what I call Sister Act 1 and Sister Act 2, okay? So once when he's in Egypt and another time when he's in the land of King Abimelech, he, he pretends that Sarah, his wife, isn't his wife to try to protect her when he knew that it could have actually led to endangerment, and it did. She could have been mistreated and mishandled horrifically. And Abraham does that because he doesn't trust God with his wife. Sarah tried to take control by having Hagar have intercourse with her husband Abraham. And then their son Ishmael didn't receive the blessing that we just read about, at no fault of his own. These people, okay, we, we don't trust God. Yeah, you're going to give us a son, but it hasn't happened yet, God. So here, let's just make it happen. Sarah laughs at God's plan for a child. That, that promise in verse 9 that we just read about, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. It's God talking to, talking to Abraham. Sarah overhears it and goes, ha, yeah, right. Now, it was crazy for sure. She was 90 and Abraham was 100. So that, that is crazy. But after all that God had promised them and led them through, Sarah still doubts God's clear and sure promise to her and to her family. Clearly, clearly this was sheer mercy and sheer grace. But here's the thing. It would have been for anyone at that time. It's easy for us to laugh at and shake our heads at Abraham and Sarah, but, but that's what I think anyone would have done, maybe even worse. I, I don't know if I would have moved 400 miles away if God just showed up randomly in my life and said, move 400 miles away, I want to bless you. I'm not sure I would do that. I hope I would, but see, of anyone, he chooses them, and they're, they're, a, bunch of, they're a bunch of mess-ups, and, and anyone would have been at the time, too. So the question really is, why would God have mercy on anyone at all? Let's keep reading, Romans 9, 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither 
good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why did God have mercy on Jacob, but not Esau? Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done Nothing, a little bit later, not because of works, but because of him who calls. How could God just choose one over the other before they did anything at all? It's kind of like uh, people who do their March Madness brackets and just go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'll pick that one. Um, some people even name their team names after that, Stacy, <clears throat> uh, and then end up winning the bracket anyway. But that's certainly not a sure thing. It, it, you know, Stacy got lucky and happened to win this year, but no hard feelings. Uh, yeah, okay. What are, what are the chances, though? It seems here like God is like Jacob Esau. He's playing a little Russian roulette, right? This is one or the, oh, that one. On top of that, God doesn't just choose one to receive the blessing over the other. It goes beyond that. It says here that God hates Esau. And loves Jacob. And he does this before either of them lifts a finger. That's not fair. Let's look at it a different way. Why did God have mercy on Jacob? Let me tell you about Jacob. Jacob's nickname was the deceiver. Jacob tricked his brother Esau for a birthright. And then tricks his dad for a blessing. And then he manipulates his father-in-law and runs away with his daughter. Why that guy? Or let's look at Esau as well. Why would he, let's say God chose Esau instead. Well, Esau was rather impulsive. He traded his birthright for a stinking bowl of chunky soup. And then he marries foreign women, not women, several Foreign women, after God clearly told him, don't do that. Why Esau? Let's look at verse 11 from, from a different standpoint. It says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. See, look at it through this lens. Pretend for a second. Look at it that you are God and look at it through his lens, okay? Neither Jacob or Esau has earned anything yet. They're not born. And you, as God, know that they're both going to end up as undeserving of anything. Okay, one called the deceiver and one just, just impulsive, but you promised, so you'll mercifully put your blessing on Jacob. And you do it so that people will clearly see that it is you, that it is God, not men, that are doing this. What about that line, though, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? What do we do with that? Well, I'm going to leave that to Dr. Jeff Dodge. Uh, Jeff Dodge uh, is a pastor now at Veritas Church in Iowa City, but uh, he was at Cornerstone and Ames for years and, and was my professor in seminary. And he said it really well, so I'll just let him say it. He said, now, don't get too hung up on the hating Esau thing. It's in the same vein of Jesus saying, to follow me, to love me, means you need to hate your father and mother. It's, it's relative. 
See, Esau was blessed and received favor from God in a lot of different ways. But as far as the promise goes, the one through whom the covenant will flow, he made that decision before either of them did anything good or bad. So what Jeff is saying is, hey, think of it like rejection of a specific promise more than hate the way we think of it. Clearly, God loved Esau, actually. He blessed Esau, even though Esau didn't deserve it. We read of that in Genesis. See, God's trying to emphasize how merciful he is. Why even Jacob? Why me? Why you? Why anyone? It says here, not because of works. Not because of works. Does that sound familiar at all? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not by works. See, don't get so undone by God's mysterious election here that he talks about. Don't get so undone by that that you miss his marvelous grace. Romans 9, 14, we'll keep moving. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Why did God have mercy on Israel but not on Pharaoh, king of Egypt? You could be like, okay, God, I, I get that the Israelites were your chosen people And they were in slavery under Pharaoh and Egypt. But why, God, would you actively harden someone's heart? What if Pharaoh and the the Egyptians would have softened their hearts eventually towards you, God? I mean, there were all these plagues going on. If you know the story, there were 10 plagues. And you got things like blood and, and, and bugs and boils and eventually death of the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn. Often people soften their hearts when they're at the bottom of the barrel, especially when it's clear that someone or something, God, outside of themselves, is up to something. Why restrain Pharaoh from your mercy, God? That's not fair. Let's look at it this way, though. Why did God have mercy on Israel? First, let's look closer at Pharaoh's hardening, okay? Did God really restrain his mercy from Pharaoh? Well, eventually, but not right away. If you read in Exodus, Pharaoh on the first five plagues, and they were not pleasant plagues, on the first five plagues, it doesn't say that God, Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. No, it said that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. This was definitely Pharaoh choosing to harden his own heart. See, Pharaoh restrained Pharaoh from God's mercy, and eventually, as Romans 1 says to us, God just gave him up, gave him over. 
God was like, fine, if you're going to have a hard heart over and over and over, I'm going to use this to show off a little bit. I want to explain the context of verse 15 a little bit to you. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. He's quoting something. He's quoting Exodus 33. Let me tell you about Exodus 33. This is right after Exodus 32, where the Israelites make a golden calf. Okay, they've just been delivered from Pharaoh after 400 years of slavery. God miraculously delivers them and Off they go and they even get chased by the Egyptians and God parts the Red Sea, a whole sea, and then washes up the Egyptians behind them. They should be rejoicing and praising God. And while Moses, their leader, is off on the mountain to get a word from God to to, to help them as they walk forward with him, they're like, ah, we're in the desert. It would have been better that we go back and be in slavery. I mean, obviously not thinking clearly, but... They're complaining, they're grumbling, and eventually make a calf that they worship made out of gold. But yet God, after all of that, decides that he'll go with them anyways, even though they don't deserve it. And that's when this line falls. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Israel, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to have mercy on you anyway. God's saying to Moses, And to Israel, be amazed, be overwhelmed at how merciful I am. I can have mercy on whoever I want. And of all the people, I'm being merciful to you. Even after you spit in my face. After all I just did for you. See, Paul's helping us understand here in Romans 9. That if anything should seem unfair here, it's that God shows his mercy to Israel. God literally just got done saying to them before he decides, I'll have mercy, I'll go with you. Exodus 33, 5, listen to this. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. He's like, I'm not sure what to do with y'all. But yet, Moses pleads with God and God has mercy. See, all of this is intended just to, just to put a giant telescope on God and zoom in on God and his mercy, that he would have mercy on anybody. If he had mercy on these clowns in Israel, there's definitely hope for clowns like me and clowns like you. Let's keep going. We're not out of the woods yet. Romans nine nineteen. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? See, verse 19 here. These Roman believers that Paul is writing to seem to be a lot like us in 21st century America asking very similar questions, right? This isn't fair. How can God punish someone for something they didn't ultimately even decide to do because you chose it, God? Why does God have mercy on some people but not others? Let's look at it a different way. 
Why does God have mercy on anybody? Verse 20 is basically saying, hey, do you have greater wisdom and understanding than God? Who are you to talk back to God? No, really, when you read this, think of it like that. Who are you? Who am I? You know, it's like trying to explain to a four-year-old, hey, we are moving. Okay, let's say you're moving to Chicago. We're moving to Chicago. And they, they get it kind of. But they don't really get what that means, and they have no idea why. Even if you shared with them, well, daddy's got a new job, mommy's got a new, whatever. Whatever the circumstances are, they would not get it. They don't have the capacity to understand that. And we are the same way. We're not near as smart as we think we are in comparison to God. And Paul says, God says to us, who are you to talk back to God? Now, it's understandable to have wrestlings with God, and it's good and healthy to do so. The book of the Psalms is full of that. But at the end of it, who am I? J. Oswald Sanders, an author in the 1900s, said it like this. What will amaze us as we look backwards from eternity is not the severity of God's justice, but the greatness of his mercy. See, when... when We get to heaven and we're looking back. We're not going to be like, oh man, why was God so cruel there and there and there? No, we're going to be like, how did that guy get here? Right? We're going to be like, I'm here and they're here and they're here. What? We're going to be amazed at God's mercy, not his justice. The right question to ask is, why does God have mercy on anyone? But let's delve into that question a little more. Why does God have mercy on anyone? Ultimately, the answer to that is that it's a beautiful mystery. A beautiful mystery. A mystery nonetheless, but the mystery is why was Christ sent so that we could be saved? I mean, was it fair for Jesus to bear our sins on the cross? He certainly didn't deserve it. See, things won't always seem fair to us. However, in God's beautiful, mysterious plan that we often don't understand, often in tears, we're like, what is going on? We know that what God is up to is good and beautiful and fair. I think of last Sunday, if you were here first service, I loved it. One of the most beautiful worship experiences we've had. Um, some crazy anomaly and, and the soundboard sound, just like the, the power just cut out from the soundboard. And we just, we just did it. I, hats off to Josh and the worship, worship team and Stuart. They're like, all right, let's just do it acoustic. You guys got to sing out. And it was a relatively new song. Like we, we'd only done it a couple times. And everyone in here just belted it out. You guys are like a choir. Y'all sing well. I guess I, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by that. But, <laughs> but y'all have some good voices. We're just singing it though. Like, but it wasn't just like we're singing some songs anymore. It's like, no, we're here and we believe that Jesus is alive today. And we're in this together as a family. I loved it. The goosebumps just thinking about it. But what's crazy is, is it was Easter. So 
you know, we're trying to put our best foot forward, and the worship team has it all polished, ready to go. Even Josh even said to me, he doesn't usually say, he's like, man, I feel really good. This is going to be really good on, on worship side of things today. I'm like, awesome, that's great. And God just goes, ha, this is going to be even better. Often we don't get the pleasure of seeing how it's even better, though. And that's why we're left with the mystery and the questioning. But I want, I want to give you two more concrete answers to this question of why does God have mercy on anyone? And I think the answers are found several times right in this text. But before I show you those, I want you to think of it like this. And I got this illustration from Pastor J.D. Greer. He has a great message on Romans 9. Uh, if you want to check it out, it was really helpful to me. But he said, you know, it, it's really good that the solar system orbits around the sun and not the earth. It's a really good thing, actually. So uh, think about it. If it didn't, we would not be breathing right now. Okay, if, if, if the sun was orbiting around the earth, it just wouldn't work. So if we think of God as the sun and us as the earth, God's the point. He's the sun. His greatness is greater than ours. So you better believe that even with our own salvation, it's going to revolve around him, not us. This is why and this is how we can be convinced of the Romans 8 love that we went through a few weeks ago. See, how can we be convinced that nothing can separate us from God's great love in Christ? Why? Because salvation rests on God, not me. Not by works. Even before I did a thing. That's how we can have unshakable assurance. Because of God. Now let me show you two answers to this question. Why does God have mercy on anyone? First, he has mercy to display his power. Verse 17 says, that I might show my power in you, Pharaoh. He's having mercy on Israel so he can show his power through Pharaoh so that people would see that God is greater than even the king of what they thought was the king of kings at that time, Pharaoh. He was regarded as a god by the Egyptians. And he's going, nope, I am God. And in this, even in this, this crazy circumstance where Pharaoh hardens his heart and God just gives him over to that and hardens his heart as well, God shows mercy to Israel to go, hey, you know what? I'm the one in control and I'm the one with the real power. Also, if you look at 21 through 23, same thing. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, there it is, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Verse 22, to make known his power. See, even, even God's just wrath that he displays, his perfect justice is, is all to just show how great God is. And he's showing it to an incredibly unjust, unfair world and people. 
God's going, I decide what is fair and just and right. And even in his mercy, his mercy it looks even sweeter as he does this. Verse 23, it says, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. See, God's displaying even his restraint as to an act of showing his power. This concept of meekness, which is power under control, is definitely power. All of us know that it is usually harder to restrain yourself from something than just doing something with force. See, that's what God is doing in displaying his mercy to any of us. He's going, hey, check it out. I am powerful. I am God. Why does God have mercy on anyone? First, to display his power. Secondly, so that his name would be proclaimed to everyone. His name would be proclaimed to everyone. Verse 17 says that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now let's look at the last part of our scripture this morning. Verse 24. <clears throat> Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The non-Israelites, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, Gentiles, Iowans, non-Israelites, non-Jews, all can be his people. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And Paul's been saying this throughout this passage. Verse 6, he said, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. See, it's not about the blunt line. Verse 8 it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. It's not about the bloodline. God desires his name to be proclaimed to everybody. He is great. He is good. He is the only one worthy of worship. So I want to invite you at the end of this to adopt Paul's attitude towards all this. Look at verses two and three again with me. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did you catch what he's saying? Paul, understanding what he is about to tell us in Romans 9, understanding completely what he's about to say and the complexity and the hard, that's not fair questions that, that come up in your mind. He's going, hey, I desire with an unceasing anguish and sorrow that, that my people, the Jews, would be saved. See, see, Paul was a devout Jew until Jesus just radically showed up in his life. These are his people. This is his bloodline. This is his family. And he, what he's saying is, I would take their place in hell if they could go to heaven. 
burn me so that my family can go to heaven and be with Jesus. We need to adopt Paul's attitude towards people in our lives. We need to do way less of going, wow, God, that's not fair. I don't understand how you work. Do you, do you save people? We don't have a choice, blah, 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 blah. Instead, we need to go, yeah, we need to wrestle with that a little bit. But at the end of the day, people need Jesus, and I'm called to share it with it. I'm called to share that good news with them. Let, let us have this burden. I have this unceasing anguish in my heart. Is that how you feel towards people who are not saved? But let me ask one more hard question. If God's going to save whoever he wants anyway, why share Christ? Why pray? Princeton theologian A.A. A. Hodge addressed that really well. He said, does God know the day you'll die? Well, yeah. Has he appointed that day? Yeah. Yeah. Can you do anything to change that day? Uh, I guess not. Then why do you eat? Well, I, I eat to live. What happens if you don't eat? I'll die. Then if you don't eat and you die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? And then he says, quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. Sharing Christ is the preordained method for God to save people. So just share. Just eat. Why would you ignore God's clear life-saving commands just because he doesn't need you to accomplish his work? Newsflash, did he ever need you? No. Why would we want to miss out on that journey, that adventure, the joy of seeing others' lives changed as we share the good news with them? Just because God knows how or what's going to happen to each person doesn't mean that you do. You don't. And it doesn't mean you don't have a critical role. You do. Just eat, share, pray. Paul, in the very next chapter, calls us to do this. He's well aware of the mind-boggling truth that God saves some but not others. Yet, he takes full responsibility for sharing Christ. And he calls us to do the same. So I want Paul's words to ring in your ears as we leave today from Romans 10, 13 to 15. Listen to our call. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Just eat. Just share. Let's pray. God, we just grappled with some really hard truth. And I admit that I still have some questions and wrestlings in my own mind and heart, but at the end of the day, I've still got some family members and friends and neighbors and people I haven't even met that really need Jesus today. So help me and help all of us 
to have an unceasing anguish, to have sorrow in our hearts for people who do not know you, God. Help us to have this unrelenting desire to do what you've called us to do, to share Jesus with people, to pray for people who do not know you, to be sent. I pray if there's people in here that you are sending to foreign countries or to other cities or states to bring the gospel, or perhaps you're just calling us to be sent across the street to our neighbor. Help us to go. We don't understand you completely, and that's what makes you God and us humans. We thank you that we have mercy at all, that we receive grace and mercy at all, and I pray if anyone in here has not, that today they would choose to trust in you, and you would draw their hearts to you, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.